0: The Psalms. Personally, I'm not the most artsy guy in the world. I'm not a real soft, touchy feely guy, maybe sometimes to my detriment. So, the Psalms, you know, we, we often go to our favorite Psalms for a lot of that just raw emotion and encouragement. And so, I've never been a big Psalms reader. Yes, I've read through them, but not really gotten into it. And so, When I found out that I was going to be filling in the pulpit here and we were doing a series on the psalms that Warren picked out, I was like, wow, I don't know. That doesn't really ring true to my heart. Of course, that's me talking. And so uh, I was asked to, you know, just pick a psalm. And so I poured over for several days different psalms, psalms that I knew, psalms that I was familiar with, psalms I wasn't familiar with. And nothing really jumped out at me. I mean, I got it. but And then I came across 32. And I was like, this... This sounds familiar, it, although it, is, it will sound familiar to you for many reasons in a minute. But then I realized that back in November, when I was up here, I was preaching through chapter 4 of Romans, and Paul referred to it. I was like, oh, that's how I know this psalm. And so I started reading it. Oh, my gosh, it just, like, the world just opened up to me. It was so beautiful. The psalms are like that. They're beautiful, but they're also mysterious. They're often Almost painful to read. I mean, there is a psalm that talks about blessed, happy is the man who bashes Babylonian babies' heads on rocks. I don't mean to be real graphic, but it's there. What does that mean? That's rough. So part of me wanted to dive into a really tough psalm and try to really figure it out. But that's not where the Lord led me. The Lord led me to Psalm 32. Why is Psalm 32 so awesome? Because Psalm 32 stands in the shadow of the cross. It is the picture of the gospel. It is the picture of our lives from start to finish in our relationship with God. And in fact, if we're really honest with ourselves, it is a cycle that we often take repeatedly or in different areas of our lives as we grow closer to the Lord. And there's a critical component to this growth, and it's faith. I'm going to get to that in a little bit. I'm going to try to frame it in a way... That is real and not silly. So let's start. If we're going to spend in true Calvary Chapel fashion, like some time on the first word. First two verses go, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. You could render that count against him and in whose spirit There is no deceit our spirit. We have a spirit, 2 Corinthians. We have a spirit inside of us, and there's no deceit in that. So we're going to get to that. Blessed, okay, what does blessed mean? Well, happy, joyful, these are some words you can't really get our language around it perfectly. The more I sort of looked at different, maybe translations, at peace. So you are at peace when your sins are forgiven. So the youth retreat we went to, our theme was peace. And so all of our messages, our sort of conversations were about peace. It's what we all search for. We all want peace in our heart. 98% of humans want peace. You know, I think sometimes our lives are so scheduled, kids are packed into a million activities. I think it's important that kids go and just unwind and download and their brains are more in an atmosphere to accept the spirit. Maybe we'll speak about that a little bit today. So let's jump into this. Verses 1 and 2, we read, and really our youth retreat was centered around John chapter 14, verses 25 through 27, where Jesus is telling his disciples that he is coming to bring peace, but not the peace as the world knows. That's what we're going to unpack today, that there is a distinct difference. We all want peace. Jesus will bring us peace. But what does that mean? How do I access this? It's not a magic formula. A lot of times we think it's magical. It's not magic. It's supernatural in a way because the Lord is. But it's not some magical potion that he throws on us. Really why we don't have peace is that we are separated from God. Now, that might sound cliché. That might sound like, oh, that's the easy Christian way out. But it's the absolute truth. We are separated from God, and that separation causes us to have all an assortment of anxieties and issues and fears, not the normal kind that come and go because we're human, the kind that drown us, the kind that stick in our bones so deep that they make us ache. And that's where this psalm is going to go. This psalm is written by David. David, a man who knows all about this, who wrote psalms and then after he went through that horrible year where he was trying to cover up vicious sin, he wrote the most beautiful songs, sometimes in the greatest distress. Hence we get the raw nature of songs. A man who committed adultery, committed murder to cover it up, coveted his neighbor's wife, told an assortment, I'm sure, of lies bearing false witness. And that year was groaning him. And our bones groan when we have hidden sin that isn't resolved. And then we find ways to deal with it that make it worse. And we play victim cards and we lash out at people when we really know in a moment of honesty, deep inside what's going on. The separation from God is this unrepentant sin. And we're going to address this. It can also be some people that just like their sin. They're just in it. A lot of people of the world that really don't know the Lord yet, they're just in their sin. But they're still trying to find an ease of their pain. Listen, unaddressed pain is the source of so much addiction. It's the source of so much addiction, not just drugs and alcohol, but addiction of social media, where you have these virtual relationships that aren't real. Because you don't want to get hurt by a real one. This is the world that we live in, the world that David lived in. It's no different. We might have some different implements that we've got, that we, tools or whatever, but it's no different. That's why this Psalm is so beautiful. So we have transgression that is forgiven. Let's look at what the word transgression really means, rebellion, willful wrongdoing. We've got King David here. He's in this sin, but blessed is the man who the Lord does not impute iniquity, like take his twistedness and condemn him for it. He is pardoned, in a legal sense, pardoned. Like if you have a life sentence, or you're sentenced to execution, and then the governor writes this letter, or the president, and you are pardoned. Imagine how you would feel. Psalm 103, 12 states, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions? Listen, this is just the Old Testament. We live under the New Covenant, the New Testament, with Christ Jesus. We know that through him this occurs, but the But the Jews had it. They had this from God. But over time, began to lean on their own understanding. They began to lean on their own power to try and rescue themselves. Give me a king, they would cry out. You need the Lord sets you free. And we're going to break this down and get into it. Now, something we can read over so easily and in whose spirit there is no deceit, which can be translated like guile or sneakiness. Okay, how many of you know of somebody or have repented of sin knowing that you didn't really repent? We want the salvation from Jesus. We don't want the Lordship from Jesus. Savior, Lord and Savior. We run to the Savior. So David has done this. He's caught in sin but he's still king. He's still been appointed by God. He's, and we feel that too. So what do we do? We often sort of deceive ourselves. We say, okay, yes, I'm sorry. I wish I hadn't done this, but we really haven't come to a full turning in our minds. We know deep inside that this isn't happening or it's a cycle that goes round and round and round and it has not been broken because we're not at full submission. Or maybe we stop sinning a lot and we just sin a little. Okay, I'll stop cheating, but I'll watch pornography. Oh, well, it's not as bad. It breaks relationships. So there is little sin, great sin, sin is sin, and it cascades. One sin leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. You know this. It's not just one little thing you're doing. Like King David, it's many. sometimes. We go to church a lot, and we may cover up our sins with a lot of good deeds. Well, I got this little sin in my life, but I do a thousand good things. I'm a busybody. The Bible talks about busybodies. Jesus doesn't want a busybody. Ask Mary and Martha. He wants your heart, and he wants it totally. He would rather you do nothing and you are his than you do 20 hours a day of good Christian stuff and you have unrepentance in your life. Absolutely, that's true. There are people who are immobilized or incarcerated that love the Lord and can do nothing, like in the sense that we see. All right, verse three. And so down he goes and he's explaining this. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality or my strength, my vigor was turned into the drought of summer. For a year, David was like this. And he's telling you about it. He's not just telling, he's singing this, by the way. Sometimes hundreds of instruments. We don't know what it really sounded like. We don't know its melody. We don't know anything but we know it was put to song. And whenever you put something to song, I'm just taking songwriters at their word, and I can kind of see it from the outside. I'm not a songwriter or musician, but they're pouring into this, like artwork, pouring into it. It's an expression. So not only is he writing something, it's poetry, it's song. I don't know how you even do this, except you go through something really tough. So, He's groaning. It's an internal process that he's talking about. And you know this, it wears you out over time. It's tiring. It's hard. It's like this constant drip off of you, of your strength, this unrepentant sin. And what happens over time is it begins to disturb relationships. You get angry. You loathe yourself. And so you lash out at people. You become a person who becomes unlikable. And so you become isolated. You begin to think like a victim instead of the conqueror in Christ that we are. And this victimization mentality that we get, it brings us apart from the Lord. This is a really big deal. We're eaten up with conviction. Counselors call this like a shame cycle that we get into. And Spurgeon wrote that the amount of time between conviction and repentance is directly related to a person's spiritual health. How long does it take you to come to repentance? Does it take a day, an hour, maybe in a moment, or does it take years? Unfortunately, that's the story of us as humans, a broken world we live in. Verse five, for this cause, I acknowledge my sin to you. So now he's like, okay, it took Nathan. (laughs) Sometimes it takes like this heavy hand Something just squashes us. The Lord does this. Don't forsake the Lord's discipline. Pain is not always a bad thing, but his hand got heavier and heavier, and then Nathan comes along. And now he's done. So what does he do? I acknowledge my sin to you, and In my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave my iniquity and my sin. It takes a lot longer to confess sin than for God to forgive. That's certain. But when he does, this is the crucial moment. You just saw some baptism. Baptisms are awesome. We think of baptism, we think of water, we think of immersion, we think of all that. You know what? It's really just a party. That's all it is. It's a big party. Look, look who I am. I have stepped forward. I am now part of the fellowship. I love being in fellowship with the Lord completely. I have given myself over. I'm dying with Jesus. I'm being raised with Jesus. This is awesome. It's a symbol. But the baptism that John preached, the baptism of repentance, you must have. Without that, that water baptism is zero. The baptism of the Holy Spirit on the other end. You don't understand anything until you've been baptized by the Holy Spirit. All of this is just might as well be Greek. It might as well be just completely illegible. The Baptism of repentance, baptism of the Holy Spirit, that's where it's really occurring right here. Really, the baptism with water, that just, that's celebration. That fortifies the faith of the believers. That's rejoicing, which we're going to get to in just a little bit. It's beautiful, but it's not where we need to be focused on. Verse six, for this cause, everyone... Who is godly shall pray to you, and godly here is translated. You can translate it like faithful. Now I want to stop and talk about that for a second. For this calls everyone who is godly shall pray to you, who is faithful in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. He's being bold to God. These are promises from God. And you know what? When God promises it and you believe it, you can be bold. You can be very, very bold. Let's look back at this. I think this is something we we mess up sometimes. For this cause, everyone who is faithful or godly, let's let's work with the word faith here, shall pray to you. And so I think we sometimes think of this faith idea as like this supernatural event that just comes upon us. Like now, God gave me faith. We want to equate faith with, like, oh, I look out there and I see that the grass is green. I see it. I don't have to have faith in that. I know that. I can see it. Sky is blue. I see that. We tend to think that really good believers have a faith like that. They don't. Faith is an action word that you do, you put it into practice. You read a couple of verses and then you, by faith, you apply it to your life because you believe it to be true. You choose to believe it to be true. Kind of like if you got in a brand new Honda Accord. Brand new. Most people like to think of Honda Accords as it's very reliable. Ours is, it's got 200 million miles on it. Things just goes and goes. You get into it, and it's new, and you're driving along for like a thousand miles. You don't even give it a second thought. Brakes are going to work. Now, you know they might not, but you don't really think about it. You just put your faith in. It's like that. It's a daily thing that you choose to do. And over time, this working out of your salvation, this training, as Hebrew says in chapter 12, which we may read in a bit, this training begins to take hold in your life. But you've got to trust it. You've got to believe it. You've got to put your faith into it. So it's not magic. So he does this, and I sincerely believe that the root of so many problems are that we don't believe it. We actually don't believe. We believe some of it, but we don't actually believe all of it. Last night, we went out to dinner as a family. We didn't know where we were going to go. And then somebody in the car said, how about the wood grill? Nothing against the wood grill. I love the wood grill. That's the problem. See, here's my problem. I show up to the wood grill. I've got my plates. And by the time I've gone through all the little areas, my plate is essentially brown. It's just brown. It's got every form of meat on it. It's got some potatoes, maybe so brown and white, gravy. Well, there's no color, well, until I get the gummy bears on it, and then I've got some color, that's my green. The consequences, though, are, they're unspeakable, really, they're bad. You, know, you feel horrible when you walk out. At least that's my experience with the wood grill. But well, you know what you can do? You can choose something else. You can go to the wood grill, like Pastor Steve, who makes me feel so inadequate sometimes. When he goes to the wood grill and I go with him, it looks like a garden on this plate, and I'm like feel like such a loser. You know, this, this guy is so spiritual, you know. I'm always thinking like he's thinking in his mind, well, I'm eating from the garden. And I'm like, you know, this is really God's food, you know. I feel like such a sinner. So I don't really go with him. I'll eat as little as I can. Um, but some of you have had this experience, I have, at very infrequent times in my life where I've decided. I'm going to eat really well, not just try to lose weight and, you know, go to the beach and look nice. I'm talking about be healthy. And, you know, that first couple of weeks can be so painful. Like when you really change, like I'm not now, but uh, you decide to do no sugar of any kind. You know, after half a day, I feel like a million bucks and I'm like, I'm gonna do this forever. And then after two days, I feel so bad. I can remember going to one of my kids' basketball games and it had been like five days and I had no sugar, no bread, no, no carbs really whatsoever, hardly ever. And I remember walking in there and they, were, they had the hot dogs in a rotisserie and they had the buns, the warm, slightly moist buns just right there coming from the bottom steamer. And I have never smelled something so good. I mean, I just wanted to go in there and just eat buns. Just, this is so amazing. I'm really digressing here. But when we choose the good. We are intrinsically rewarded. Verses six and seven. For this cause, everyone, and I read this, who is faithful. I just want to get down a little bit further. I shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. All right, listen, the flood of great waters is going to come. You know that it rains on the righteous and unrighteous alike, the Bible says. The storms will be there. But how is your boat built? If we build our boat, save for a few really master carpenters that reside in this church, if we build it, it may be kind of steady in a really calm body of water. I remember like putting one together as a kid, like 12 years old or whatever, building a raft and just kind of pulling it out into the water and it slowly sank. But for a little bit of time, it's good any kind of storm, goodbye, you'll sink. And then when people try to cope, they try to find peace in their heart through all the worldly ways of finding peace, especially like addictions, you might as well take a saw and cut a big hole in the bottom of your boat. And now bail water and weather the storm. That's why drugs and alcohol are so insidious because it makes the opportunity for recovery seemingly impossible. Now you've got to untwist. Remember, iniquity, sin, we have a twisted nature about us. And what this does is it changes us and it twists us even more. Counselors will tell you this, this is like almost, almost outside of God and massive intervention, unrecovered when it's gone on for a while. So you, Lord, are my hiding place, not a substance, not a person. People are wonderful. Relationships are great, but they're not your hiding place. And people who do that will be let down and they will fail. People who put their trust all the way in that or in a pharmaceutical. You may need some kind of a pharmaceutical. I'm not a doctor, I can't judge that. But it cannot be your hiding place. That's where my whole existence is. And David recognizes this. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. Verse eight, I will instruct you and teach you the way you should go. I will, not a counselor, although God may work through one, all kinds of counselors, guidance counselors, family counselors, and addiction counselors. They can be very helpful, but it's gotta be under the authority of the Lord. Life coaches, all kinds of things. The authority of the Lord, I will guide you he says, I will guide you with my eye. You know that type of relationship, don't you? Where you know somebody so well, you know their eyes. You know what they're thinking. You know, especially their mood or where their countenance is. When I come home in the evening, my wife has been at home all day. And y'all know this. First thing you do without even thinking is you look at her eyes. What is the status here? But it's the status of the house. You know, I've got a couple of teenagers at home. So the status is frequently changing. Like I'm on hyper monitor mode all the time. Like what's going on? And my wife is very stable and very loving and, and just incredible. But we're all like this. I mean, she's doing the same thing to me. And if you know somebody real well, that's how it is. And the Lord says this. He wants that same relationship with us. I will guide you with my eye. Such a close relationship. The relationship is so easy that you read a verse and it just pops, just pops. He's guiding you. Do not be like the horse or like the mule. I love this type of imagery, you know? Don't be like the horse or like the mule which have no understanding, which must be harnessed by bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. In other words, God is going to make a lot of efforts to bring you close to him. He is. But don't make him make a hard effort, or you will pay. You'll pay. It's not a payment like, oh, you did a bad thing, and so here's a bad thing for you. It's a discipline. You can turn here if you want, Hebrews chapter 12, but I'm going to read it. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son. It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? And if you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. So if you see some people who look like just life is going crazy easy and they're not involved, they don't have the Lord, the Lord is not seeing them as a son or daughter. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respect them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of Spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. As they thought best. I mean, how many fathers in here can share with me in the knowledge that we don't always discipline best? We try to do our best, but we are human. And so it isn't best. But God is acknowledging that better than zero. But God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness, and this is great right here, memory verse right here. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful at the time. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. I don't know, I'm fascinated by prison videos, like documentaries, like long time, go away forever type people. How do they live? How do they survive in this? And they talking to this one guy, he had been counseling some youth and he said to them, If you don't take responsibility for yourself, somebody will take responsibility for you. And he said it with authority because he knew he couldn't take responsibility for himself. And he was sitting in the big house for a long time. And it was painful to get your attention and to know the Lord. He'll do it and you will have peace. All right. Verse 10, many sorrows shall be to the wicked. You don't have to go here. Just one last bit here from Proverbs chapter 17. Whoever would foster love covers an offense. But whoever repeats the matter separates close friends. A rebuke. You've been rebuked. Hey, you screwed up. You've been rebuked. Impresses a discerning person. A person who is wise. A person in the Lord. It may be in the moment. I've been rebuked in the moment. It doesn't feel good. You might get a little defensive. Maybe a little attitude. I've seen it in students. A lot. I saw it in high school for 20 years. All right. I got a D, you know? I'm like, yeah, you got a D. Yeah, you earned that D is what you got. <laughs> All right. A rebuke impresses a discerning person. More than a hundred lashes a fool. A fool will take a beating. And they're still right. Evildoers foster rebellion against God. The messenger of death will be sent against them. Better to meet a bear robbed of her cubs than a fool. I love this. Meet a bear robbed of her cubs. So... We have this right here, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. So instead of groaning, instead of being the victim, instead of moaning, now you're looking out, you're looking toward the Lord. And all of a sudden you see your faults, but that's a good thing because then you're not seeing him in everybody else. And guess what? You become more approachable. You know, that pain, that pain that we feel is a direction that the Lord is trying to get us to go somewhere. Pain is okay sometimes. You feel lonely, you need relationship. And maybe you're lonely because of the way you act and the way you treat people and the way you think and your mouth is ugly. Maybe that's why you're lonely. Loneliness can be, I'm not saying all the time, but it can be a very internal thing when you get out of yourself and you love others and you go into fellowship, you go to God first because you want the right context of relationship. Not a tit-for-tat relationship, a sort of, Reciprocity here, but a truly loving relationship that the Lord has for you when you recognize it and accept it into your life, then you love like that. And that's different. It's also extremely attractive. And you will not be lonely. So that stuff that we feel sometimes, Lord, He's working in you. But verse 11 Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous. And shout for joy, all you upright in heart. I can imagine like the music just started cranking. Those harps, and they were jumping and dancing. They were really excited at this point. But be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous. Not you self-righteous. Those people are not very happy. I'm talking about the righteous. The righteous are the sinners who recognize their sin. That's the righteous not the kind we picture in our mind the fuddy-duddies that walk around in their busy bodies and they're always telling people how wrong things are and not those they're not very righteous I'm talking about sinners who've gotten on their knees before the lord and know who he is so this is a story about redemption this is a rescue really from the lord he wants you to trust in him and his finished work on the cross. That's what he wants you to trust in. And this psalm right here, it's the reality of who Jesus is. It's not really a prophecy, I don't think. It's, it's just who God always has been. And God had to send Jesus so that we could understand it so much better and easier because we're, we're that thick. So when we trust in him, then the repair begins. And all this other stuff, will find its proper place. Amen.